The costs of the opioid epidemic are mounting for states and local governments. They are paying more for both treatment efforts and law enforcement. And they are increasingly trying to recoup that money through lawsuits. More than 25 states, counties, and cities are now pressing cases against drug makers, distributors, and pharmacy chains. It's an approach that harkens back to the 1990s and the state lawsuits that eventually led to a $200 billion settlement with America's cigarette makers. Is the opioid industry going to follow the same legal path? We're going to ask our two guests, Richard Osnes, he's a professor at the University of Kentucky School of Law, and Jody Avergan, a partner at Cadwallader and former chief of staff of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us. Richard, before we get into the the prospects for success uh, of these lawsuits, can you just give us a rough overview of the kinds of allegations we're talking about? What what sorts of things have drug makers and other companies allegedly done wrong? Well, it's, um, the uh, allegations are that they marketed their products in, in such a way that uh, it encouraged uh, addiction or led to addiction on the part of, of many of the users. Uh, there are actually a number of things that they're accused of doing. Uh, first of all, misrepresenting the addictive qualities to the FDA and uh, later to physicians uh, in order to encourage them to uh, uh, prescribe these drugs when they weren't uh, necessary. And then secondly, um, their marketing practices uh, were such that um, uh, they allowed their distributors to uh, send uh, very large amounts of um, opioids to uh, Appalachia in particular, but elsewhere in the United States, far more than uh, would be reasonably necessary, uh, either knowing or suspecting that they were going to be misused, uh, sent into the black market and, and, and so forth. And Jody, which uh, sort of sector is is uh, most vulnerable here? Are we mo- mostly talking about the the manufacturers of these drugs? Are we talking about the distributors? Are we talking about the the, the pharmacy chains, uh, or, or are they all sort of equally at risk here? I, I think that um, certainly the lawsuits started uh, with manufacturers. They moved to distributors. Uh, there was some success in West Virginia against the big three distributors, but the lawsuits of late have focused on the manufacturers and focused on the marketing practices as as Richard just described. However, I think that uh, all aspects of the supply chain are at risk. Um, there is the significant law enforcement effort with uh, with respect to pharmacies, pharmacists, and physicians as well, but there are just so many of them that I think that law enforcement and plaintiffs' attorneys have decided that the the best uh, the best chance for having an impact is on the manufacturers and distributors. Richard, uh, there's been an awful lot of uh, talk comparing this situation to what happened with the tobacco industry back in the 1990s. Uh, to what extent do you think that is an apt parallel? Well, when this uh, story first broke, I felt it was closer to the situation that occurred with firearms, that as far as the theories of liability were used. But I think what's what's starting to happen now is is this uh, Oklahoma land rush syndrome, and that does resemble the tobacco cases, I think. Um, that is to say, uh, large numbers of plaintiffs are bringing suit 
uh, not so much expecting to win, but uh, to force or encourage a settlement. And I think in that respect, it, it strongly resembles the uh, what happened in the, with the tobacco cases 20 years ago. Jody, what's your take on that? Do you agree that these suits are uh, primarily, or at least uh, to a large degree, focused on winning a settlement as opposed to winning a, a verdict? You know, I think I think it's an interesting question. Certainly, uh, so many communities have legitimate losses. Uh, the the expenses of caring for addicted populations are tremendous, so the losses are real. Um, I I am not sure um, whether. Um, Plaintiffs are seeking to affect conduct or get money. I suspect it's it really is a little bit of both. And if I could just um, uh, comment also on your on your question about um, how reminiscent this is of, of tobacco litigation, I think a, a critical distinction is that the manufacturers and distributors, and indeed pharmacists um, and and doctors who who are being sued are for the very large part in the business of healthcare, they exist to make people better. They make medicine, they distribute medicine. And that really is a critical distinction. Although, again, I agree with Richard that, that the parallels are striking at first glance. Is, uh, well, Richard, let me just ask you to sort of pick up on that. Is, um, I'm trying to decide, as Jody was talking there, if if your comparison to the gun in industry is uh, is closer or not. Are, are we, um, you know, the gun industry is an industry that I, I think, you know, it, maybe it's not healthcare. They're not trying to help people in that way, but it is at least a, a, a legal product that generally isn't regulated. So, uh, where does where do opioids sort of fit in that? Maybe expand on what you're saying about it being more like the guns than than like uh, tobacco. Well, I, I was thinking that the, the liability theories they were using, particularly the public nuisance theory, uh, fit the the gun cases uh, a bit more than the tobacco cases. That theory is the. Uh, uh, assumes that the uh, social costs, the health care costs, the law enforcement costs are uh, that these communities have incurred uh, are directly attributed to the marketing practices of the uh, of the particular industry. I don't think that was um, a common theory with the tobacco cases, uh, but it uh, certainly fits the opioid cases. We're talking about the opioid epidemic and in particular the lawsuits by more than 25 states, counties, and cities trying to recoup potentially billions of dollars they've spent on treatment efforts, law enforcement, and other expenses. Our our guests are Richard Osnes, who's a professor at the University of Kentucky School of Law, and Jody Avergun, who's a partner at Cadwalder and a former official at the Drug Enforcement Administration. Um, the uh, you know one defense I've seen described for companies in these cases is essentially the uh, the FDA approved it defense. Uh, these are products that were approved by the FDA. The warnings were approved by by the FDA. How much does that shield uh, drug manufacturers and others uh, in these lawsuits? Well, it's it's certainly uh, an argument they can make. I don't don't think it would be an absolute defense, but uh, it it certainly allows the drug companies to say we didn't do anything wrong, uh, at least insofar as the uh, warnings are concerned. Now, that really doesn't go to their marketing practices, which I think is a, involves a separate issue. 
But, um, yeah, unlike the tobacco cases um, where cigarettes were, of course, not highly regulated, uh, opioids in particular are. Uh, and uh, the FDA, as you say, uh, approved the warnings, approved the uh, um, the uh, uh, licensing of the drug, uh, and uh, that ought to count for something. At least it, it's a, an argument that the uh, drug companies can raise. Well, Richard, they will be raising that question, that that defense, of course. But if you look at this from the perspective of you know what should they have done, um, according to the plaintiffs, and potentially that might they be liable for it? What kind of actions should these drug companies, the manufacturers and distributors, have taken to avoid the problem here? Well, certainly they should have monitored the uh, uh, the uh, sales of uh, by their distributors. Uh, in, in at least a number of cases, uh, pharmacies in relatively low-populated areas were uh, purchasing huge amounts of opioids. Um, that, and, and in that sense, it resembles the gun cases. Uh, they should have smelled a rat. They should have realized something is, is not right here. Uh, and um, the Everett case, which was reported in, in the media recently, is a good example of that, uh, that um, uh, they... Um, didn't do anything. They didn't inform the FDA. They, they, their own monitoring revealed that there was something very wrong, uh, but they uh, didn't do anything about it. And of course, the plaintiffs will say they didn't do anything about it because they were making money hand over fist uh, selling opioids and had no incentive to do anything about it. But it certainly um, could get them into a lot of trouble. Jody Evergan is back with us. Uh, J- Jody, I want to ask you, you're, you're in, in private practice, and I'm, I, I want to know what your sense is about, about the plaintiff's bar in, in, in these cases, these lawsuits back with tobacco and, and, and now uh, go forward when state attorneys general uh, ally themselves with uh, law firms. And I'm wondering how much enthusiasm you are detecting from the plaintiff's side in these cases. Are, are uh, law firms jumping aboard these these suits? I think that um, a perfect example of how enthusiastic the bar is is the fact that Delaware is able to put out a request for proposal, meaning that they're they're searching far and wide for law firms to do this, um, and there seems to be no dearth of, of firms willing to jump on this bandwagon. I'm just not sure that it is the right way to address the opioid crisis. Uh, certainly, um, I think that plaintiffs see dollar signs, and they realize that settlements are likely in these cases. Um, the money, frankly, is just better spent uh, for both the companies and counties and states to improve prescription drug monitoring programs, to put money into treatment, um, and and really focus on addressing the problem. Um, I respectfully disagree with Richard that uh, – that manufacturers and distributors have been ignoring the problem for ages. I think that steps have been taken by most DEA registrants to address the problem, um, uh, perhaps um, not as quickly as the problem was developing, which is why there is an opioid crisis now. But um, I think that it is um, too simplistic to just lay it at the feet of manufacturers and distributors because there are significant intervening circumstances here, such as bad doctors who prescribe or doctors who legitimately believe that their patients are in pain or drug addicts who who 
really require medicine to function um, and and might not have been illegitimately getting the products. And then, of course, there's the problem that how can a distributor or a manufacturer know when a prescription is ultimately legitimate or not? So R- it, it is a highly complex problem. Richard, I want to give you the last word. We only have about 30 seconds, but I, but, but I want, want to let you be clear. Were you, was that your position on the, on the uh, what the manufacturers could do, or were you just sort of laying out what the plaintiff's case was there? I, w- <clears throat> I was laying out the plaintiff's case. Uh, I think uh, Jody is, of course, right that the manufacturers are perhaps somewhat belatedly responding to this and uh, uh, in a number of ways, and uh, hopefully that will, will bear fruit. Uh, unfortunately, they we're now faced with a, a crisis, uh, and uh, it's going to take a, a lot of time and effort to uh, to uh, do something about it. I want to thank our guests, Jody Avergun, partner at Cadwalder, former DEA official, and Richard Ostinus, a professor at the University of Kentucky School of Law.